We're in the middle of a series called Supernatural, where we're looking at Jesus' miracles as supernatural interventions in the natural world. And what we've said from week to week is that miracles are instructive because they're windows through which we can see two things more clearly. We can see Jesus' character more clearly. Miracles tell us about him. And miracles tell us also about the kingdom that he comes to bring. And with that, we're going to then over the next couple of weeks, uh, began last week, look at the miracles which happened when Jesus died and then rose from the dead, which is a miracle, and then appeared to people. Look what it says in John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. It says this on the evening of the first day of the week. Uh, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. This passage begins the transference of the Lord's Day from Saturday, which is the Sabbath day, which is the Lord's Day in Judaism, the, the religion that the disciples grew up in, and the transference from that day to Sunday, the first day of the week is Sunday. On the two successive Sundays following Good Friday, Jesus appears to his disciples. Perhaps they are back in the upper room where they sat with Jesus just three evenings prior to this first Sunday, the Easter Sunday, um, three evenings earlier, and it's just three days ago, and everything has unraveled with lightning speed. John and Peter, though, had seen the empty tomb. And then Mary Magdalene came. We talked about her. She told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. They haven't seen him yet. And they wonder about what's happening, but their belief is not so strong that their confidence says that the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish authorities. And 
Undoubtedly, they believed that if they killed Jesus and if they found them as disciples of this rabbi who they killed, then they're going to deal with them as well. And what happens, Jesus came and stood among them, showed them his hand and his side. It's interesting, one of the reasons why it might say that the door is locked, Jesus came in, he didn't go in through the door, he didn't have one of those lockpick things where he didn't have a key, he just was with them. And so that tells us something about his body. He can't eat, but apparently he can go through things without being transported. We don't know about that. Anyways, he, um, he ends up going in. The visual evidence of nail scars in his hands and feet, the spear scar in his sides put to doubt any doubts that might have existed uh, following Mary's declaration. They didn't know about this, but now here he is in the flesh, and they see um, Thomas is not privy to this sighting, but he gets his chance uh, the following Sunday. And again, it says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, as this picture indicates, uh, illustrates, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Again, the doors were locked. Jesus comes and stands there, and, and Thomas' doubts are laid to rest as well. He answers, my Lord and my God. And there's different places that you we are told that Jesus never claimed to be God, which is you can't make that deduction from the New Testament texts. It's just not tenable. He receives a direct declaration here regarding his deity. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, no, you've got it all wrong. He doesn't say anything because he is, in fact, the Son of God, deity, and he accepts worship as such. Um, it's not possible to discount that Jesus claimed to be God, just not. C.S. Lewis talks about Jesus didn't claim to be just a good person or a good moral teacher. He claimed to be God. And so we can't believe in him as a good teacher because he doesn't give us that option. We can't believe in him as a moral person. He doesn't give us that option. He said, I am God. And as C.S. Lewis points out, that gives us three options. He's, who he says he is, he's a liar or he's crazy. Not a nice person. Hey. Um, but we ask a question that we'll end up dealing with I'll ask you to think of an answer, though. Why is it important to believe that Jesus was and is God? He claimed to be God and received worship as God. If somebody were to ask you, why is it important for me to believe that Jesus is God? What would you say? Good question. It might be hard to form a concise answer. Oftentimes, the answer that I hear, many believe, it's, it's important that Jesus is God so that he could be punished in our place. Right? Because as God, he can take the punishment from the Father and stand in our place. And he can take that beating. He can't do that if he's not perfect, if he's not God. Is there anything else that, another reason? Uh, I would, yeah, let's look at that. Look what Jesus said, verse 20, 
one, he tells the disciples once he's established who he is and they are glad that they've seen him. This is what he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. When we looked at Jesus dealing with the paralytic, he was let down to a mat in the roof of a house where a lot of people were gathered. Before he healed him, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. A declaration that only God can make. We don't have any sense of Jesus could have seen. This person didn't confess his sins. He There's an evidence of faith, but Jesus unilaterally had the authority to confer forgiveness. He says, your sins are forgiven. That was something that he came to do, to indicate that he has the ability to do that. They question whether he can do that or not, and he says, which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said, I say to you, rise, get up and walk. And he did. You know what that tells us? Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. And the gift of the Spirit is given, apparently, to enable the disciples, his apostles, to continue the ministry he began. Jesus came to confer forgiveness. And we'll talk about why. He breathes on them. They receive the Spirit, and Jesus indicating the the importance of that specific giving of the Spirit. The Spirit comes at Pentecost as a force that identifies those who are his followers. I I believe that this particular giving of the Spirit is specific. It's a gift of Jesus to those who were, what we'll talk about, are his new covenant priests, his priests. And he gives them the same authority that he himself had, the authority to forgive sins. Just as he forgave the sins of the paralytic, his ambassadors have the authority to forgive sins as well. And I think that that's part of the reason why Jesus did miracles and the disciples, apostles, did miracles. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or be healed, be made well, rise up, take your pallet and walk. The reason why Jesus and the disciples do miracles is so when he says, your sins are forgiven, there's some substance to it. It's something we can believe. That's apparently essential to believe. This is the first thing he gives them in terms of their ministry, the authority to forgive sins. Receive the Holy Spirit with that. Now you have the authority. And if you say to someone your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. If you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. We might look at that and say, well, that's... Interesting, but why would that be the first endowment? Why why that? Let's look at that. 
says the word, if you forgive the sins of any, the word forgive literally means to let go or release something, to send it away. If somebody comes and talks to me and I say, okay, go do that, that sending away, departing, that's the image of forgive. So he says, if you say to someone, your sins are forgiven, your sins are sent away, they're gone from you, then your sins are forgiven. They are removed in the vision of God as well. The word, it says, if you withhold forgiveness, the word withhold is the opposite to release. It's to retain. If they're in place, if they are clamped. So you might think of this chain. Forgiveness is the unlocking of the chain. Sins are bound to us. And there is a link between sin and death. The soul that sins shall die. And the death is not just physical, it's spiritual and eternal. What needs to happen in order for that chain to be undone, for sins not to lead to death? Someone with the authority has to unlock that lock. That's what Jesus said. Your sins are forgiven, unlocked. Does that mean you won't sin? Does it mean, again, exactly correct, you will sin. Does your sin have the ability to pull you from an eventual encounter with the Father? It doesn't have that ability. That's what forgiveness does. It sends away sins in as much as they can no longer separate you from God. That's what forgiveness does. Unlocked. And if they are withheld, the chain is fastened. They bind to you. That's the image here. The disciples are given the authority to unlock people from being chained to their sins. It gives them the authority to unshackle people. It doesn't, again, mean that people will stop sinning. It means that they have the authority to prevent sin from leading to spiritual death. Um, this kind of forgiveness, by the way, and this becomes important, this kind of forgiveness is unprecedented in the Old Covenant. It just doesn't exist, and we'll see that. It only exists in the New. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant has to do with forgiveness. That's the difference. That is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New. Among other things, that's the big thing. Uh, why did Jesus need to be God? This gives us our answer. Because only God can change a covenant that he has established. Only God can do that. Who inaugurated the old covenant? God. And you know, through Moses. Yes, God through angels, through Moses. It was God himself. So if God establishes the old covenant, only God can rescind that covenant and replace it with a Another one. Only God can do that. Why does Jesus need to be God? Because only God can make a new covenant. Only God can do that. That's why Jesus needs to be God. So that he could say, this is the new covenant in my blood, and he's not just blowing smoke. Okay, you're God. You can do that. Okay. Mm, okay. I buy that. That's why Jesus needs to be God. Not 
so that I would say, not so that he can take a beating. I don't think that's what happens at the cross. I don't think Jesus is punished for our sins. What happens, Jesus nails the law to the cross, takes it out of the way, and he inaugurates a new covenant. Isn't that what he said? This is the new covenant in my blood. That's the purpose of the cross. That's what happens. It's the replacement of the old covenant with the new. Um, Only and only God can do that. So this leads to the fact that there's new belief. Again, the degree of forgiveness in the new covenant is unprecedented. The kind of forgiveness did not exist within Judaism. The disciples had never, it had never entered their mind that the forgiveness that Jesus was offering could ever be given to people. It just never, look what it says in Hebrews 9, 7. It's in your worship folders. Important passage. It's describing Judaism. It says, only the high priest entered the inner room, the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself, and the sins the people had committed in ignorance. There is a stipulation there of the sins that could be forgiven within Judaism, right? The high priest enters the holy place and atones for or covers the sins that had been committed. What does it say? In ignorance. In Judaism, there was intentional and unintentional sins. Unintentional sins could be forgiven. Intentional sins, there's no forgiveness for intentional sins within Judaism. Again, I'm not sure why that's not, we don't hear that more often. It's very clear. Very clear. It's what it says in the passage. The priest covers the sins committed in ignorance. If you didn't mean a sin, or if you did something and didn't know it was a sin, it could be atoned for. You could kill the animal, kill the goat, kill the pigeon, and that sin could be forgiven. Away. If it was intentional, if you knew it was a problem and did it anyways. By the way, how many of us have sinned intentionally? There you go. Put your hand up. How many of us have sinned intentionally? There it is. All of us have. And within Judaism, that means forgiveness is out of reach. Forgiveness is out of reach within Judaism. Only the sins committed in ignorance could be forgiven. Jesus comes as a new high priest. And a new high priest brings a new covenant. Look what it says in the other passage, Hebrews 7.12. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. When Jesus comes... As a high priest, he comes to establish a new priesthood. When you establish a new priesthood, you have to inaugurate a new law. You can't have a new priesthood that's going to deal with an old law because the reason what priests are are covenant scholars. Priests are covenant experts. So, An old covenant priest was an old covenant scholar. 
When Jesus becomes a new high priest and he develops a new priesthood, can these new priests serve the old law? No. New priesthood, new priest, new law. Who says this? God says it. That's the way it has to be. So when Jesus is a new priest and his apostles, I would say, and this is what's happening here. It's the ordination of the first new covenant priests. That's what's happening in this room. And they then are tasked to become new covenant experts, new covenant scholars, new covenant representatives. That's what they're supposed to do. That's what a priest does. Wherever you find a priest within Judaism or not priest in terms of denomination, but those who represent God, what we're supposed to be clear about is covenant. Again, I don't think you can understand the Bible or understand faith without understanding covenant. I don't think it's possible. It's important to know what covenant is in place. And if there's confusion, you know what ends up happening? We end up putting new wine in old skins. You know what happens when you put new wine in old skins? It wrecks both of them. I would call wine covenant. I would call skins priests. You need new wine in new skins. You can't. Again, we've got to understand that there's a covenant change here. That's the point. Priests are covenant experts. New covenant priests and new covenant scholars. So what is this new covenant? Again, we've talked about it, but look what it says. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And here's something that never, it just was so astonishing for them. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That is the new covenant. And we've talked about, I will be merciful, literally means I will be helios. Helios is a Greek word that means gracious, favorable, benevolent, non-reactive. And what God is saying and indicating is this. Because of the new covenant, he sees sin, he sees you sinning. Okay, before you sin, he's non-reactive. Gracious, favorable, benevolent, non-reactive. And then you go to that website. You gossip. You blow up. You look into his face. What's his face like? Gracious, favorable, benevolent, non-reactive. I will be Helios to their unrighteousnesses. That's what Helios means. Non-reactive. Again, if you hear that, that seems kind of dangerous, doesn't it? If we believe that type of forgiveness, but you know what Jesus is indicating here? Belief in forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a carrot that God puts at the end of a string anymore. It's what you're given. It's what communion represents. God doesn't extend forgiveness out. Maybe you'll get there. It's what he gives you. It's what begins the Christian life, the belief in forgiveness. That's why the first thing he tells these new covenant priests, this is what I want you to say. If you say your sins are forgiven, then 
they're forgiven. If you withhold their forgiveness, it's withheld. It's the first thing he wants them to know. This is what they're to declare. Um, the commissioning of new covenant priests is a necessary part of inaugurating a new covenant. Jesus is not going to inaugurate a new covenant and not have priests because with the law, you've got to have priests to be the experts at it, right? That's what's happening here. Um, as new covenant priests, apostles are to reflect this forgiveness. The distinguishing feature of the new covenant is forgiveness. That's why the thing they're supposed to say is forgiveness. This is new belief. Again, if you're thinking, and there's not a lot of conditions on this. Again, this gets dicey. It's not, there's no ifs here. They just proclaim forgiveness? Does that mean everybody's forgiven? You know what the deal is with God's promises? They only can benefit you if you believe them. God can make a declaration. And what it says in Hebrews, the promises that he made didn't benefit the people because they weren't united by faith with those who heard. When God makes a promise and you don't believe it, you know what it's like? It's like a, I don't know if I have any, but it's, let's pretend I do. I have my, oh, here it is, a coupon. Ah, dog food. This happened to me the other day. Jeez. June 24th. <laughs> Done. Can't redeem it. You know, so an unredeemed coupon. So this coupon, it could have been redeemed and was worth something. I, I waited too long. Now it's, it's worthless. Um, the way it is with promises, believing is how you redeem the coupon. Here's what he says. I want you to listen to me. I will be Helios to your unrighteousnesses, and I will remember your sins no more. That is the law Jesus died to inaugurate. Now, here's my question. Do you believe it? Do you believe your sins have been sent away? It doesn't mean you won't sin. It means that your sin cannot change God's face. Do you believe that? Very difficult for us to believe. Wouldn't you agree? You say, Mike, yeah, I'd like to believe it, but I don't. I'm with you. This is what faith needs to grab onto. This is the new covenant. This is Christianity. This is where it begins. Forgiveness is not something down the road. Forgiveness is first base. You can't go anywhere farther if you don't grab forgiveness. It's the, it's the stuff of Christianity. And it's where things begin. That's why he gives them. That's what he tells them. If you forgive sins, they're forgiven. This is what people need to know. Why is this the way it works? You say, my, my. If people just believe, again, would you, now what I'm saying, not everybody believes this, and is a promise of forgiveness powerful if somebody doesn't believe it? Is forgiveness in place if somebody doesn't forget, if somebody doesn't believe it? The answer is, the answer is, no. If it's believed, is it in place? Do you believe it? And if you're with me, 
You say, you know what, Mike? Frankly, to be honest, I believe it and I don't. I understand that. I understand that. You know what Jesus said? And I'm really glad for this. He said, if you remain in my teaching, you'll know the truth. And the truth will liberate you. We're going to talk about forgiveness every week here. Because, like me, we need to be continually exposed to it. Because what happens if you remain in it, if you remain in it, it starts to sift down, doesn't it? How many of you would say that? That you're not all the way yet. How many of you would say, you know what, Mike? I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was. Forgiveness, and I'm understanding that at a deep level. How many of you would, yeah, how many of you would say that? Shake your head. Yeah, yeah. Would you say that? That hat, that's the way it works. It gets a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. It starts to fill. You know what I think you'll find as you believe it a little bit deeply? You start to be a little more gentle with yourself. You start not as much go stupid. <laughs> that's the way we tend to do things. But when you believe forgiveness, it's not that you don't care your sin. It's that you start beating yourself up as much. You start to move towards him. God, you know what? I did this, and I'm so thankful that I'm forgiven. You know what ends up happening? You end up thinking about why you do what you do. It starts to be a relationship. That's the way it works. And it, it happens over time. Look what Second Peter says. Great passage. We've talked about it before, but I just love it. Peter writes, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. It talks about becoming partakers of the divine nature and escaping the corruption in the world caused by sinful desire. How many of you would like to partake of God's nature and escape the corruption that's in the world? So it's saying promises are what allows us to do that. Then it goes on. For this reason, very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection is with love. If whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It talks about what faith looks like in operation. It lists some qualities. And look what it says. It talks about virtue and knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. You think, can you, as you look down this list, can you see anything that's left out? in terms of the kind of things that would constitute a Christian life, self-control, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, virtue, knowledge. I think it's all there. 
And what it indicates, there's one thing right at the heart of it, right at the foundation of it, and it's faith. It's faith. Faith has to come first. Faith in what? In the new covenant. The new covenant is faith in what? Forgiveness. The new covenant is the promise of forgiveness. Would you agree? I will be helios to their unrighteousnesses. Remember your sins no more. And to the degree we can grasp that, again, it's not all or nothing, on that foundation we start to be able to put other things. Knowledge and self-control and virtue. and it, But it goes on that thing. That's the adapter. That's what comes first. Um, Peter identifies the power that produces um, the kind of things that we want to be characterized by. And he says, uh, by his own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world. God provides us with everything through his promises. Promises access his power. You grab onto promises and you become partakers of the divine nature. Not all or nothing, but gradually. You grab onto the promise, you can escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. It's all about promises and faith in the promise. Which promise? And Peter, I think, lets us know the promise that he's thinking of. Look what he says, that last verse 9. If anyone does not have these qualities. Okay, I want you to look up at me. So, how many of you lack self-control? Ooh, ooh. Virtue? Some of you lack knowledge? Godliness? If I were to look at your life, look at my life, brotherly affection, love, lacking, lacking? i got a question. What's the problem? What's the problem? I'm just not disciplined, Mike. I'm not devoted enough to God. I don't care enough about Him. I'm a backslider. You know what Peter indicates? If these qualities are not in place, you're nearsighted and blind. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins. It starts with faith. And faith and forgiveness is where the new covenant begins. It's where the power begins. It's where the promises interface with us. It's where everything begins. The most important thing God would have you know, the most important thing you need to believe is that God is unreactive to your sin, that he's helios to your unrighteousnesses and remembers your sins no more. That's where it begins, and that's where everything is built on top of that. That's what Peter indicates. Faith that is the foundation of other virtues is faith in new covenant forgiveness. Um, you know, we have, and we're going to think, come on up, Devin. The um, there's new belief that comes with Jesus' resurrection and the installation of priests. Belief in a new covenant. 
We've gone from old covenant to new. You know what that means? In the old covenant, there is disbelief. And it could be disbelief in that blessing comes from obedience and the cursing comes from disobedience. They did wandered around the wilderness. They really didn't believe it. And that's what the problem was. There was a new disbelief, though, a new disbelief. Jesus indicates that with his death and resurrection comes a new covenant, indicates that that new covenant means that your sins are forgiven, and he remembers them no more. The new disbelief is, well, God forgives sins, but he could never forgive that sin. He could never forgive my sin. He could never forgive what I do. I'm going to be direct. I'm going to be direct to you. If you're in that place, now I get it. I'm not mean and I'm not angry. That's unbelief. Maybe it's time that you started believing what Jesus says about your sin. And stop playing with it. Is it forgiven? Then maybe it's time you started to believe it. It's time we, and again, it's not all or nothing, is it? Keep coming back. We're going to continue to, to talk about this, and our belief in it is going to grow. And as it does grow, you will find yourself escaping the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And you'll find yourself deeper and deeper partaking of the divine nature, because that's the promise, and that's how it works. I pray for us. Um, Father, thank you for your promises. And you would have us make room for them. And it's not an all once and done thing, but as we make room, we start to see them more deeply. We believe them more deeply and we're liberated more deeply. Um, Just with your head bowed, let me give you something to, to think about. If you want to put a stake in the ground relative to faith, when you've been convicted of doing a sin, again, We deal with it. Talk about it to God. Don't hide it. Say, you know what, God, here's what I did. I did this or I did that. And when you're doing that, I'm going to give you four things to think. And thank him for this, that he's still in you. He's still with you. Good's still ahead of you. Guaranteed. That's the new covenant. And so it would look like this. Uh, God, and again, if I do whatever, I'm not going to tell you what I do. (laughs) But having said that thing... Uh, I want to say, God, thanks that you're still in me. And even though I did that, you're still with me. And good's still ahead of me, guaranteed. God makes covenant promises and he doesn't welch on them. And what that means in terms of that sin, God is still in you. And God's still with you. And good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. God cannot welch on a new covenant promise. God, help us to believe what you say. In Jesus' name, amen.